0: We will be in John chapter 6. If this is your first time opening a Bible, first of all, we want to make that Bible that we gave you a gift to you Uh, But in addition, don't be afraid of the table of contents. We're walking through the Gospel of John. It's an eyewitness account from one of the 12 apostles by the name of John. And he has been introducing us to Jesus by introducing us to people that don't quite get Jesus. At the very end of his Gospel, we saw this at the beginning, John says, my goal in even telling you about Jesus is that so you will believe in him and have life in his name. And so his purpose is, every bit of this is to encounter you and I and all our skepticism and all our questions, and we'll even see today in all of our assumptions and false beliefs, so that we will see Jesus who as he really is, believe in him, trust in him, find hope and joy in him, and experience life in his name and no other. And so in chapter six, Jesus performs two miraculous signs, signs that point to his authority. He fed thousands of people, and then he walked on water, to demonstrate that he is something for us. But then he begins to explain why he did that. He fed the people so that they would see that he is the bread of life. And he walked on that water so that people would realize he is our passage across troubled and chaotic waters. There's something about him that John wants us to know. And that word is a difficult word to accept. So beginning uh, we're going to spend most of our time in verse 60 to 71, but I want to begin in verse 51 so that uh, so that we will be covering some of these things, kind of picking up where we left off. Beginning in 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I Jesus said these things in a synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives Life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those, who, did, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. It seems that if we look pretty closely at this chapter, Jesus, even though he performs many miracles and signs that draws a crowd. His end purpose by the very end with a a cliffhanger of an ending John gives us at the end of this chapter is to whittle down all of these people. And he whittles down some of these people with impure false motives. Some of them wanted political, they had political interests. Hey, Jesus, we want you to be a king. Some of them wanted simply just bread in their stomach. I mean, after all, that's the guy you want as king. Here's a guy who makes free bread everywhere. That's got to be good for our economy, right? And the way he whittles down this crowd all the way down to 11 is through hard words. We saw this last week and we want to pick up there because it really lands even the most most painfully and, and profoundly in verse 60 through 71. Soft teaching, I share with you one of my mentors kind of helped me see this, makes for hard people. But hard teaching makes for soft people. Soft teaching Soft peddling the nature and character of Jesus makes some of the most hard-hearted people. Religious people, and by, by our typical assumption, we'd say, oh, religious people are strong, hard people. No, actually, religious people are soft. They believe they can earn their own merit before God. And they need to hear the very hard words that says, your righteousness is filthy, disposable rags. There is no one who is righteous, no one, not a single one. Now again, this isn't a challenge for you to go out and just be a jerk, right? I think what we see here specifically is that it's the hard words of Jesus that soften and save people. So don't use this as an example to go out and please don't pat yourself on the back for being the person that tells it like it is. Those people are largely driven by insecurity and fear. But instead we see here the hard words of Jesus, in fact, soften and save people. But it's the hard words of Jesus that actually cause many of these people, did you catch that? To turn and leave. And what began as a crowd of anywhere from five to 15,000 people ends with 11. Jesus does this on a regular basis, but I want you to see as we begin to walk through, I think there's kind of 10 different observations. And as we last week spoke highly of the implications for this text for our own personal faith our own experience of the transforming work of the gospel as a gift of God's grace alone he is the one who draws us to himself anyone who says I am a Christian because and then fills in the blank with something of him or herself is not a Christian a person who is a Christian and says I am a Christian because God in his mercy sent son sent his son Jesus to take my place for which I can take no credit Unless you want to be the perfect, righteous, sinless sacrifice that goes to the cross, all you can do is worship Jesus for being that. And so the person who begins to think that following Jesus is a duty or a commitment, even though duty and commitment are certainly the implications of being chosen by God, being drawn to the Father we see here is just an act of his grace. You can't boast about it, Ephesians tells us. But what we see this week, and I want to draw out, are are the implications specifically, the corporate implications here. How this affects our relationship to Jesus and then horizontally our relationship to one another. So if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a believer, I'm really glad you're here. You couldn't have picked a better Sunday to be here. But I I want us to have kind of a conversation, we'll kind of have like a family talk about what it looks like for Christians to relate to one another and to follow Jesus together. And so I want you to listen in. And I want you, if if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I I, I want you to begin to think about what it looks like to be a Christian. See it on its merits. I don't don't want to soft sell it to you. I want to give it to you in its fullest extent. And I want you to begin to even see us as the people who who desire by God's grace to live up to this example. But over and over and over again, Jesus makes this kind of a claim. That being a false disciple, we'll call that unbelief under the veneer of belief, is more more dangerous than not being a Christian. On a regular basis, we see that Jesus expresses deep concern, speaks hard, penetrating words to the people who believe themselves to have it all together. Just listen, this is just a few. Remember, Jesus gives a parable of the bridesmaids. They all look alike, but when the groom returns, half of them are rejected. They aren't really ready. Their motives aren't really to wait for the bridegroom. He gives us a parable of two houses. They look alike, but when the storm comes, we realize they're not the same. The one on the sure foundation, even though they look alike, is the one that remains. He gives us a parable of the four soils, right? The parable of the sower, in which multiple seeds germinate, seem to have life, but it's only one of those that is really fruitful, the most terrifying of this, and I think we even see the, the personification of this in Jesus' relationship to his disciples in this text, there's a parable of what we called the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, that amongst God's people are wheat and weeds. And, 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 and the disciples and the followers of Jesus, like any good religious self-righteous Pharisee, is like, hey, can we pick out who stays and goes? Can we pick out? And he says, no, you wait. And he gives this eschatological or this picture of judgment of the final things he says no you wait they'll all be harvested together and then they'll be judged and separated even though they looked alike and they were growing side by side in the end the final judgment will separate them and what happens to those weeds they're burned luke 9 you even see people come to Jesus, right? My favorite one is the, the man who's like, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you, I'm all in. And you would expect Jesus to be like, finally, someone who gets it. But what does he tell him? Goes right after his false motive, his false discipleship. He says, Man, foxes have dens, birds have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Motives are always exposed. Just like this man. And they go away. The Sermon on the Mount, remember this? It ends with this just painful, like a just kind of a, an exclamation mark. And, and Jesus says, Look, on that day, there's going to be people who gather around me and say, and call me Lord, Lord. And they're like, Look, we did all these things in your name. We, 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 we prophesied, we cast out demons, we saw miraculous things. And what is Jesus going to do for those people who look the most religious, who look like they get it? He says, You ought to go away. I don't even know you. This is a key component to Jesus' teaching, that these hard words actually soften and save people. First and foremost, we see here as we walk through verse sixty. when the disciples heard it, what did they say? This is a hard saying. Now that word there is, is not hard, like difficult to understand. That word hard there is the word scleros, where we get the word sclerosis. It's not hard to understand. What they're saying is it's hard to accept. This, this is hard to receive. But here's what I think we find out an authentic disciple of Jesus feels the weight of Jesus' words. Feels the weight. I mean, look, what do we see here? Like, it's the height of Jesus' public popularity. Thousands of people until finally he boils them down, chases them off down to 11. Now, I don't think that means that our job is to chase people off. But what I do believe is that we should make it really difficult for people to fake it. How do we do that? I believe we do that, like Jesus says here, like with a consistent dependence on the hard words of Jesus. A regular diet of these kinds of things are what hold us close to Jesus a regular diet of words like it is finished that is I have paid this in full for those of you who think that somehow you are going to have to earn God's favor this week the hard words that says no that you don't have to repent you don't have to repent of of not being able to do everything you have to repent of even thinking that you could You don't have to repent of not knowing the answers to all the questions. You have to repent of ever thinking that you could. These are the hard words of Jesus and a regular diet of this. It's finished. A regular diet of what Jesus says about marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife. A regular diet of what he says about money. This will mess you up. No one in the Bible talks about money and hell more than Jesus. And a regular diet of his words are what actually soften our hearts, keep us in a humble state we the church ultimately are the creature of his words. And that means including the words that are difficult, as they say here, difficult to accept. Maybe the best way to summarize it is this. If you find yourself today saying, I've got all this figured out, friend, you may be in the most dangerous place of all. If you find yourself going, Oh my, I'm really humbled by this. In some sense, I'm almost terrified by this. I'm worried, Jonathan, I might be a false believer. I might have false motives. And friend, here's an interesting thing. You're in the safest place of all. What we find to be the case throughout Jesus' teaching is that in fact, the people who see Jesus for who He is and either completely accept, lay down their lives for him, or completely reject his his claims that seem absurd, are the ones that are in the safest place. It's the people who, on the veneer or surface, say, yeah, I get it, I got it, I'm, I'm, I'm one of God's people, but under the surface are hiding deep unbelief. That's the scary part. That's the scary place to be. Revelation even concludes, right? A Critique of one of these churches that's really fruitful. but He says, look, look, look. You're neither hot Right? You're neither cold. But since you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out. The safest place to be is either to see, just to see Jesus and his lordship claims as they are. Feel the weight of his words. Even if you reject them, that's what's bizarre here, isn't it? Even if you just reject his words, you're at least in a place where you might uh, begin to hear and receive and be shaped by it. So if you're in this room and you're like, I don't know about this, you're in a good spot. So ask yourself these kinds of questions. Does what you believe about Jesus hold up to what is said here? Is what you believe about Jesus able to stand the test of his words here? Does it measure up to these very hard words to accept? Could you say, I believe in Jesus, or even I'm a Christian because, and then the end of that sentence has the language of this chapter. Could you use the language in this chapter, right? Like, there's no way I could be a Christian unless his his heavenly sustenance had fallen from the sky to to give me life. There's no way I could be a a follower of Jesus had God not drawn me to himself out of the pit that I was in. Had he not breathed life? There's no way I would follow Jesus had he not walked across the chaotic water and calmed it on my life. Is that what being a Christian is for you? Would would the words of Jesus here be the words that you use to describe what it means to follow Jesus. I've taken Jesus in. He's my food. He's my drink. You get the picture? I mean, up to this point, John has been introducing us to people that don't get Jesus. It's just that this is probably the scariest example. We've been meeting people that don't get Jesus, but we'd like to ask, so is is my faith in Jesus like theirs? Ultimately, John wants us to believe and have life in his name. This means that if you think you get it, you are to test what it is that you believe and know to be true by these hard words of Jesus. Test what someone else told you about Jesus. Test what it is that you've been taught to believe about. Test it. Hold it up. Hold it against Jesus' hard words and be comforted by what you see. But if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus, this is what's amazing. You're in actually a better spot than some of the other people maybe partially deceived, the people with a religious veneer around you. Don't be fooled by them. Don't be impressed by them. If you wouldn't call yourself a believer, like you don't know Jesus, you're in the best spot today to say, oh, that's who Jesus is. I want to know that guy. That guy sounds serious. I want some of that. Don't be fooled by the religious veneer of people around you. Believing in him, passing from death to life, having life in his name comes from believing this about Jesus, seeing him as he truly is. It's really interesting. He doesn't soften his words either. Did you catch that? They're like, we read the beginning of that, to intro, like, hey, what, what do you mean eat his, eat his flesh, right? What do you mean eat Jesus? And instead of like softening it to explain it, he doubles down. And this is what Jesus does, right? He's like, you need, to, you, need to, you need to see me as the bread from heaven. What do you mean we need to eat you? And you would expect him to go, this is what Jesus you would expect to say. You're right. What I meant to say, here's what I mean. If I could just say like, you what I'm talking, he goes, no, I'm going to double If you don't eat my flesh, drink my blood, you're dead. Now look, look just the contrast of how we t- typically do that, right? We typically do the opposite. Whenever there's a picture that's difficult, scleros, difficult to, uh, dif- difficult to uh, like, receive, we did, go other ways, right? We go the opposite. Let's just soften it, right? Jesus is like, you know, I, I don't know. You, you heard something? He's like, he tells the rich young ruler, look, if you don't sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and then come follow me, you can't, you can't have me. And he says this bizarre thing. It is, more, it is easier for the camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And how do we explain that? We're like, well, here's what he meant. It's, what he meant to say is if you're willing if you're, you know, if you if you are if you are willing to be sacrificial, that's what, no. Jesus is like no, this, no. If you don't like, and, and so for example, these other like the foxes have dens, right? Birds have nests, and the, and we go like, well, well, what, you, don't, you don't have to actually be homeless. He's like, no, you have to die. Jesus doubled down. So like if you don't take up your cross and follow me, if you don't take upon the marks of torture for me, you don't know me. You like your comforts? Son of man's homeless. You like your family? What does he say? If you don't hate your father and your mother, you have no part in me. Oh, your father passed away? I mean, I don't recommend you do this. This Jesus has permission to do that. He's he's the Lord. Don't, don't. I wouldn't quote Jesus on this one. If your friend loses their father, you hug them, love them, weep with them, right? Like Job, you get into the suffering with them for days right? But what does Jesus say? Your father passed away? Let the dead bury their dead. You want comfort? You don't like pain? Take up your cross. A sure means of slow torture. The second thing we see here is an authentic disciple is softened by the hard words of Jesus and accept them as the source of life. Now, I have to define this, and we've done this already once, but there's a word that Jesus used here, the the word life, Zoe and there's two words in the New Testament for Life is similar as we talk about love in the New Testament. There's different words, right? There's parental love, storge. There's, uh, there's like brother and sisterly love, phileo. And there is, uh, there's like an erotic or attractional love that's, that's eros. But then there's a godly love, a self-sacrificing love, a pure love, agape, right? And it's really hard because we use the same word love to describe like our wife or spouse and french fries. And it's not helpful. And we have to like, like no, that's not what he meant. It's not, not the same. You've kind of ruined it. And the same thing going on here. There's two words in the Greek. For life. One of them is bios, where we get our word biology, life science, right? And then Zoe, which is life that he's talking about. The word he uses here is Zoe over and over and over again. I'm the bread of life. Now that's important because he makes a distinction. He says, look, the people in the wilderness had bios bread, right? Survival bread. And what happened to them? It's harsh, right? Like dead. Your fathers ate it, died. Says it twice. I'm not like that, he says. The sustenance I provide is life to the full. Now we're going to see this over and over and over again, but it's, it's, it's probably more like we would use the word survival. You've probably even heard me use that, the difference between like surviving and thriving. And he asks an important question here that we ought to consider. What is the good life? How do you define it? Because Jesus says that, Evidently, he's the source. We accept him as the source of the good life. Ask yourself that. What is the good life? How do you define it? Now, ask you, maybe if you can't think of it yourself, how does Apple define the good life? Right? How does a college or a university define the good life? Right? How might your parents, This this will shackle you for your whole life, how might your parents... Define the good life. We saw this. Uh, I, I told some of you this before, but uh, several years ago, um, my daughter at the time was like six years old, and we like to do daddy-daughter dates. And so we're, uh, they had a day off from school, and so we get some coffee, and it's a coffee date with daddy. So we're sitting there, and it was one of the first times my daughter gets to order her own hot chocolate. right? Her own, very own. And we sit down. Are these comfortable chairs? Hanging out. I was like, I'm going to do some work, and you and we'll talk, and you know, we'll hang out, and just just do our thing, right? Just just being, being friends. And uh, and I start doing some work, and she gets her own little she gets her own little hot chocolate, and she has her iPad there. She's watching like kids YouTube, and she looks at me. She goes, "Daddy, this is the life." <laughs> now, what did she mean? Did she mean I was dying? And now I'm, I'm I'm now surviving as a result? Like, no, of course not. What did she mean? She meant this is the good life. This, this, This is really living. This is really living. And look what Jesus does here. He makes a very clear distinction. I am the source of the good life. I am the source of the good life. And you'll say, well, of course she thought that was the good life. Of course she thought. She's a child. Clearly that's not the best life. Friend, what do you think your definition of a good life looks like compared to Jesus? How do you think it measures up to the immeasurable value of God's perfect son going to the cross for you? Begin to see our version of the good life, whether defined by Apple, our parents, a college, or some sort of corporate sales policy isn't it any more mature than thinking that hot chocolate and an iPad is the means of fulfillment? There's a real danger of false discipleship. There's a real danger here. They were right with him, and yet his words actually began to expose their hearts. And eventually, what was exposed in this crowd of people is what they really ate and what they really drank. What's your meat and drink? What makes you tick? Even now, what's the good life? Because what we find out is true disciples grab, we, we grapple with these claims of Jesus. We grapple with them, and we realize Jesus is the only source of true life. He's the only source. And to receive it is to write we talk about it on a regular basis, to hand Jesus a blank check. And say, it's yours. You put the dollar amount. All, my, all I am, all my life, everything I have, it's all yours. Take it all. Take my loves, take my political affiliations, take my relations, take it all. You can have it, it's yours. An authentic disciple is softened by his hard words and then realizes what a true source of joy Jesus really is. Thirdly, we see a true disciple sees Jesus as the ascended and sovereign Lord read you Daniel chapter 7, this phrase son of man. We talked about this before, but in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, we see a prophecy of what God's redemption would look like. He says, and I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. That's the timeless one, God. And he was presented before him, and to him, that is the son of man, was given dominion, Glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. True disciples of Jesus see Jesus as the ascended Lord, the sovereign Lord. Don't miss that. These claims to absolute authority though they sting at first, are like a deep plow that makes the soil of our own souls fertile and soft. I don't want you to miss that. Because I know some of you, as I even talk about that, you know how hardened you really are. You know how bitter you really are. You know how much you starve for compliments but don't even take them well. You know how cold you are. And you know it because you know the secrets in your own soul that you're terrified to share with anyone. Don't miss. Jesus is a good, sovereign Lord. He's a Lord. He has dominion over everything. A genuine disciple of Jesus experiences the good life through the Holy Spirit. You see that next little bit there? He's like, do you take offense at this? What what happens if you're going to see me ascended to the throne? Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The good life is a spiritual life. The good life is a spiritual gift. Now, we talk about this on a regular basis. I'll just show you that the lordship of Jesus here equated with spiritual realities. We talk about this on a regular basis. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says it this way, Therefore, I want you to understand no one speaking in the holy, in the Spirit of God could ever say Jesus is accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is what? See that? Are you offended? You're offended? You're offended I said you had to eat my, eat my flesh and drink my blood? What if you saw me ascend back to the throne? What if you saw me as Lord, like that, my words bothered you? What if you see me as sovereign Lord and no one can see Jesus as their own Lord except by what? What does he say? 63. It's the Spirit who gives a good life. Look, the fact that you hear even, the way I talk about this on a regular basis, the fact that when I say Jesus is Lord, that none of you are like throwing chairs at me right now is evidence that the Holy Spirit's working in you. Now, if you feel like you want to throw chairs, I don't mean, okay, you're just, you have self control, but like, there's still, like, just realize why that offends you. You don't like the thought of Jesus as Lord because you really think you are. And unless you realize that only the Spirit can soften your hard and cold heart, then you'll always live there. But for those of us, this is interesting. We connect the Lordship of Jesus, like the Corinthian church did, with the work of the Spirit. It's a spiritual reality. Second thing, right after it, a true disciple renounces the flesh and the works of the flesh. Now I won't go too much into this because the rest of the New Testament expounds upon this. The works of the flesh are these, the works of the Spirit are these, right? The fruit of the Spirit are what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Notice, even those good things, that, those fruit is a singular fruit. They're not a bunch of fruit you can pick and choose. Well, I'm loving, but I'm impatient. No. The Holy Spirit starts to grant you all of those things such that we even recognize the love and kindness that we experience I'm sorry, that's not your disposition. You you would you would more likely use the people around you and manipulate them for your own gain. If you have any kindness or patience towards me or anyone else, what is it? It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Praise God, praise God. This is the Spirit working in you. A true disciple renounces the flesh and the works of the flesh. A genuine disciple sees that faith in Jesus is given by the Father. Look what he says after that. The flesh is no help. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew it. In verse 65, he says, this is why. Why is this happening, Jesus? Because I told you, no one can come to the Father unless it is granted him by the Father. It's the Father that gives. Now, we don't like this. I I went on this for just a little while last week, right? The picture, we don't like the doctrine of election. We don't like the thought of predestination because it, it absolutely sticks our, like, Autonomous Western post Enlightenment sensibilities, doesn't it? Right? And, I, and I, I, it's my favorite. is like Patrick Henry is the best, right? Give me liberty or give me death, right? Like, like, don't infringe upon my freedom. I'd rather die than you infringe upon my freedom, right? And so when I say, actually, God's sovereign, you don't have any freedom or good in you, I know, like, it pokes at you. And you're like, we're all post Enlightened, you know, Westerners, and that, that bothers us. But it's really interesting, it's kind of hypocritical. People don't like election, the doctrine of election or predestination or God being the author of salvation, drawing us to him. But it's really interesting. They believe in predestination. You believe in predestination in places where you actually have another sovereign Lord? Oh, I don't know. Maybe like, maybe hell for you is loneliness and your sovereign Lord is the acceptance of someone who loves you. And so what, what are you looking for? Soulmate. mate. Hear it? Hear the doctrine of election in that one? Baby, baby, we were meant to be, right? Like, like you have no choice, right? And, and 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 just see it. You, you're, how you view lordship is evident in who you think has election and who has sovereignty. And we do this all the time, right? This is especially painful. You parents, right? You make all your decisions based on what your child wants because you don't want them to be unhappy or like mad or throw a temper tantrum. Like we we oh we must do we must obey. You get it? Like this is real. We don't mind the choosing of whoever's sovereign. That's just me ranting. But when we talk about election or things that are divinely ordained, Shakespeare's star-crossed lovers, what we're seeing is what we believe is sovereign. You will give God freedom in your life. It's just that you may think you're God or something else. Seventh thing, genuine disciple will refuse to turn back and refuse to follow the crowd. We're going to land on this one, spend most of our time thinking about this before we land this plane. A genuine disciple will refuse to turn back and refuse to follow the crowd. They went from a feverish crowd of thousands at the beginning of the chapter all the way to the very end. He's like, and I've got 12. And then we read like the bomb at the end of it. Not really. I don't even have 12. Even one of you, son of Simon, he's a devil. He's going to betray So I want you to think through the corporate implications of this. What does this look like in the life of our church? People in our culture don't like thinking about inside and outside. They don't like inclusion, or me, they don't like exclusion, and they they tend to worship inclusion. And I understand that it's probably because someone in their life used exclusion as a weapon. But don't miss what Jesus just did. He just ran off thousands of people. They went from a crowd to eleven. What does it say to you that so much of the time in the American church is spent softening the words of Jesus to draw the biggest crowds? Like, have you thought about that? He's over here running off the crowds with hard words. And, and you see, even the, even the people that are left are like, I don't, know if I, can, I don't know if I can accept this. I mean, I grew up in the life of The church where Christianity was all about trying to draw the biggest crowds, manipulate the biggest possible response, make it as easy as possible to get as many people to hear who Jesus is. How many of our efforts are actually to make the message palatable to the masses while Jesus is running off the masses to build into the loyalty and faith of the few? Look, could it at least suggest that there's more to it than drawing a crowd? What are you saying? Should we all leave? No. We should all hear the hard words of Jesus and be softened. Think about this. Jesus is content with 11 who worship him as Lord over the crowd that is using him for a free meal. Let me hammer that one. Jesus seeks a few loyal followers over a crowd of superficial bandwagon fans. Jesus would rather have deep loyalty and trust from a few people than fame from a crowd. Don't miss that. This would, like, this would have been a great place to start the church, right? But what is the church that Jesus is sending them out to create? It's fueled not by a crowd of superficial people. It's fueled by 11 people who will die for Jesus. Jesus seeks fewer loyal followers. You, you get like, that? This, this, does this stir up in you an angst? The crowd runs away. Many of you are here, and many of you would call yourself a Christian because you're just simply following the crowd. You're here because you were raised in, and I'm going to put this in scare quotes, a Christian home. We talk about this all the time, I think, in the life of disciple-making. There's a, there's a practice in the South called hair-coursing. It's for snobby people from Europe. And hair-coursing is when you train sight-hounds, not blood-hounds, sight-hounds, like greyhounds, to chase rabbits. Hair-coursing. Really profound. There's some really powerful things. You kind of, I, I got the chance to study some of this. And, and there's kind of this saying as it goes. is like when you're training these hounds, when they want to find out who, like who should be the leader of the pack, What will happen on a regular basis while they're training them is this this pack of sight hounds, like greyhounds, will start, one of them will start running like crazy because they see a a hare, a a rabbit, and the rest of them will run off barking alongside them. And there's this like observation that most people in hare coursing will say. They'll say, look, something's going to happen in a little bit. A handful, most of those dogs are going to come back with their tail between their legs, their tongue hanging out, and they're going to lay down exhausted they'll have chased and run and given up but there's that one there's that one and he's going to come back with a massive joyful expression in his posture and face and a rabbit hanging from his mouth why because he saw the rabbit he saw the rabbit the rest of them were just chasing someone who saw the rabbit They didn't actually see the rabbit. They were just flowing along with the crowd. And the one that will come back satisfied is the one who actually saw the rabbit. Don't miss this. Christians are the ones who endure adversity against the flow of the crowd because they've seen Jesus. Isn't that what the miraculous works of Jesus were kind of explained flippantly in the the book of Acts with? Like these guys are idiots. They're not very well trained. They're not that smart. But what do they say about them? but they've been with Jesus. They clearly have been with Jesus. Don't miss this. Jesus is content, content to have a few people chasing ardently and fervently. There's a lot of false motives for following Jesus. Maybe you have like a false missionary zeal, but it's actually just your desire to be right. You just like to correct people's doctrines. Ask yourself this question. Who's allowed to tell you what to do? Who in your life do you say, that person knows better than me, and I'm going to tell them? That's what the lordship claims allow us to do. They chase off the crowd, but they give a fervent zeal for Jesus. I think you see this when they start to leave. Look at this. Submission to the lordship of Jesus has visible marks. It's visible. You will stay or you will go. Let me rephrase it this way. The Lord of your life is visible in your relationships. In this case, especially the crowd you follow. We talk about this on a regular basis. Birds of a feather flock together. Who, do you, who are you really attracted to? Who do you tend to gravitate toward? Is it the people who share your same secret sins? Is the unspoken rule in your relationship... Don't rebuke me, and I promise I won't rebuke you. Birds of a feather flock together. Lordship will be revealed in who you follow, especially the crowds you run in. There's visible marks. They left Jesus, and then as a crowd, they left the loyal people. I want you to see this. The corporate implications for this as a church, this is what we believe membership is. We submit to the Lord Jesus by submitting to the church as a body, a bride, a family, a house, a temple, a field, an olive tree, a flock, a vine. Submission to the Lord has visible marks, especially people that you give power in your life. I'll tell you this story because uh, it's finally public now. A good friend of mine was a pastor of a fairly well-known church and another one of my friends, he was on staff there. And in this same kind of conversation, um, he came to this church and it was uh, originally like a very large and healthy church and a lot of awful things had kind of transpired in leadership. And so my friend became the pastor, um, tried to get like a healthy sense of belonging. Who's in, who's out, who loves Jesus, like we're, like we're the marks of the gospel here. And, and it was a mess. But then in the middle of that, the leadership, he took a lot of bullets and the leadership was like, oh, we don't know if we want to follow you here. So the guy resigned. But then another guy I, know, I look up to became the pastor and came in. And he tells this story and it, it he took some bullets over this. So I'm telling you this, even, even though, because I, I know he shared this at a conference, um, spoke it from the pulpit and, or spoke it from the podium and it's like public now so I can say this, but my, my friend who's there and I watched all this happen. And when he became the pastor of this church, he, the, the liturgy of the installation of him as lead pastor, he stood before the church and he, wrote, he read out and recited parts of their membership covenant and just said, look, I am committing to you as a pastor to love and care for you in this way, to point you to Jesus in this way, right? To, to oversee as one who has to give an account for your souls. So like, made these covenant commitments. I, I commit to the, you know, hold me to this. I love you and I love Jesus and I'm gonna submit these things to you. And then he did something that he shouldn't have done. I'm not gonna do it because I'm a coward. He asked all the people, and he didn't. I mean, I think he. I don't know what he. Maybe I don't know what he was thinking. He said, "Would all the covenant members in the church stand up?" Because they had some, they had some covenants to recite as well, some commitments. And it was weird. He took a lot of bullets for it, because something weird happened. Half the people were very clear. Either yes, I have fulfilled the commitments as a covenant member. I'm a member. And the other people like. Like unbelievers or, or guests or people that had, they were like, no, I've, I'm not a member. I haven't, I haven't met the terms of this covenant. I haven't committed to this. And so the people, did you catch it? The people who knew they were in, no problem. The people who knew they were out didn't offend them at all. Do you know who was offended? All the nominal Christians in the room. The people who knew they were members and the people who knew they weren't. Like I get it like a, a first time guest was like, I'm not offended. Of course I'm not a member. It's the first time I've ever been here. Oh, how would I be a member here? You know who was offended? All the people who had found a way to follow Jesus on their own terms. Subject to no one, submissive to no one. Friend, submission to Jesus has visible fruit. Who do you submit to? Who do you follow? This is what membership is for us. And so, I, I, again, I, I would love to say, like, all because we've only been run, we've only unpacked our membership pathway for about two years, like two-year anniversary. I think will be this next, uh, this next membership class, as we kind of unpack what it looks like to be, you know, biblically belonging to one another. Um, and so, I would love to say, hey, would all the people who are covenant members stand up right now? But I'm a coward, so I'm not going to. Plus, we've only been doing it for two years. But can you just imagine? Just, to, to just would you just like look inside your soul and? Ask yourself how that makes you feel. What are you saying, Jonathan? Some people are in and some people are out. How Jesus like of you. Do you get it? You get this? Submission to the Lord has visible effects, it has visible effects. So this, we want to call you to this. Not because not we think we're awesome. We think we're wretched. We think we're awful, but we think you are too. And so that would make a really great, you, we'd make a great pair, a bunch of wretched people leaning on Jesus, to, needing his grace daily. Right? That, sign up. And your submission to him will have visible marks. So if, if I, if just picture if I said, hey, all the members of the church stand up. If that bothers you, I have two things. First, your soul's in danger. Second thing, God in his mercy is using these hard words to soften you, to soften you and draw you to himself as Lord. I can say this so much because I believe that these visible marks of submission are so important that I can even say this, like my goal isn't that you become a member of Connection Church. My goal is that you become a member of A Church. But here's what I know about nominal Christians, and this is what I know about you if you're one of those. If you're a false disciple, you're like, well, I'm not going to join this church. Here's what I know you're going to do. You're not going to join any church. It'd be awesome if you were like, I'm not going to join this church. I have principled reasons not to. I'm going to go join and be in covenant faithfulness with this church over there. Awesome, go. I, I love Jesus and his bride so much. I think that's a good idea. But here's what I probably know about you if you're one of these people Jesus is poking at. And if you're unmade uncomfortable by those words, friend, your soul's in danger, and your submission The Lord of your life is visible in the people you submit to. The relationships around you will tell the story of who is God over your life. An authentic disciple sees the futility of every other thing and finds life in Jesus alone. Did you catch what he says? What a summary of faith. Jesus, to whom should we go? To whom should we go? You're the one. You're the only one who's got words that give life. You're the only one. And this is really interesting to accept the gift of these words of life is to accept the insult. And this is a humbling part of the submission to the Lordship of Jesus and these words. I'll give you a list of some of the books that are really popular right now. I just kind of went to like some of these, some of these bestsellers that are that are that are a big deal right now. Getting Things Done: The Art of Stress-Free Productivity by David Allen. So if I gave you that book as a gift, you'd kind of have to accept the critique, right? I don't get stuff done. I'm a procrastinator. Here's a good one. I mean, these are just best-selling gifts. It'll make uh, best-selling uh, books. It'll make good gifts. The life-changing magic of tidying up: the Japanese art of decluttering and organizing by Marie Kondo. And if I gave you that as a gift, you'd be like, "Thank you," but then you'd kind of be like, <laughs> "You're saying I'm a mess." This is my favorite, this is, this is what a bestseller, right? I hate this word, I'm against it, but this is what it is. Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 Easy-ish Steps by Kelly Williams Brown. <laughs> right? I gave you that book, right? You'd be like, thank you. And then you'd be like. <laughs> still a, a, best, a bestseller, What to Expect When You're Expecting by Heidi Murkoff, right? And if I gave you that gift, it's kind of like as a mom, a you know, future mom, you're like, I'm saying you don't really know what you're expecting. You have no idea. Think about that. Like if we sponsor people through Dave Ramsey's financial peace, but recognize the humble nature of that gift. Hey, I, I, need, to, I need to learn how to like manage my finances and keep things in order to glorify God with them. We just did it a minute ago. I don't know if you caught that. Remember what we did? We just said, I, we, every week we do this. We give away what? Bibles. <laughs> and if you like accept it as a gift and you're like, thank you, notice what the thank you really is. You're saying, not only am I a sufferer in need of comfort, I'm a sinner in need of redemption. To accept the gift is to accept the critique. I love how Peter does that. Look, we'd go somewhere else, but your words give us life. And to accept them is to admit that there is life nowhere else. A true disciple is not marked by doubt and fear, but a profound awareness of how easy it is to follow Jesus for selfish motives and be Judas. And here's what I know you'll do. <laughs> if you wonder right now, you're wondering, like, what do I do now? If you wonder if you are a counterfeit fake disciple, can I tell you something? That's a really great sign. Do you know who doesn't care if they're a counterfeit disciple? Counterfeit disciples. They're too superficial and fake. The way we talk about this, especially in discipleship, is you notice people fighting in the faith, fighting to put to death sin, fighting for the joy in the gospel. And here's what we know about someone who's fighting. The fact that they're fighting is evidence that they're in the fight by God's grace. So if something in this, as we walk through it, like softens you and humbles you, but kind of worries you and you're like, ah, I'm really wrestling with this. The fact that you're wrestling means that you're in the match. By God's grace, you're wrestling with it because he has called you to the mat. If this repulses you, it's a really good sign. If you go, man, I'm really mad at this. That's actually really good. You get it. You actually get it. Real sincerity is to know how insincere you really are. And so for some of you right now, you're like, well, I don't know if my motives are good enough. I don't know if my motives are sincere. Don't miss what you're saying. You can't go to God because your motives are right. You go to God because you know your motives are wrong. Confess that your only hope is Jesus. Even your motives can't save you. Look what he says. He pleads with them. You want to go away as well? Here's what I learned. The people who can say the most difficult things, the hardest words to me, are the people that I know love me the most don't miss this several chapters later jesus will say greater love has no one than this that a man lay down his life for his friends don't miss this the hard words he speaks to us are words that he bought and paid for the privilege to say with his own blood he speaks these words to us not to condemn us he says, are are you going to leave are you going to leave too Because unlike any other friend, He has laid down His life for us. The words as difficult and hard as they are are words of love. They're not the words of a tyrant. A tyrant sins with their own authority and sovereignty other people to suffer for them. This Jesus with His sovereignty goes to suffer for His people in their place. I know some of you have been abused by authority and power. Friend, Would you see Jesus who took his power to lay down his life? The hard words he says are to soften you, to be friends with you, to draw you to his self. He, unlike the tyrant, takes his authority, his power, and lays it down for the benefit of those he loves. Would you accept? Would you accept this gift in his name? Let's pray. God, God, you are faithful to us even when we are unfaithful. You are merciful to us when we do not deserve it. God, these are hard words. I don't, there's no way to soften them. There's no way to, to, to see them in any other way. Would you now do something amazing? Would you take these hard words and use them to soften us? Let us measure what it is that we call faith and obedience against your words. Let us stop trying to follow you on our own terms. Let us stop pretending to call you Lord with a veneer of faith when down deep there's an insidious cancer growing that will ultimately kill us. God only you can do this, to see you as Lord as a gift of your spirit Holy Spirit, do that now. Work in this room that our eyes would be open to see you as a Lord that is loving and caring, a friend willing to die in our place. Holy Spirit, do it now, and let us respond in faith and gratitude, humility and joy. It's in the name of Jesus that this is even possible. Amen.